Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. It's Curious City, where we take your questions about Chicago and the region and investigate, report, explore from WBEZ. 100 years ago this month, Chicago was shaken to its core by racial violence. Black people were chased in the streets and alleys by angry white mobs. Groups of black teens attacked whites heading to or from work in the city's black belt. And many black families simply locked their doors and hid until the danger passed. In one week of this red summer of 1919, 38 people were killed. More than 500 were injured, and more than 1,000 were left homeless. Obviously, anyone who lived through the Chicago race riots was forever changed. But how did the riots change Chicago? That's the question we got from Stephen Boone, who lives in the Southside neighborhood of Woodlawn. Stephen was particularly interested in whether the riots contributed to a defining characteristic of Chicago, our legacy of segregation. As much as I love my city, it's still really segregated. I know people personally who lived on the south side of Chicago their entire lives and have never been north of Madison, downtown. You know, it's, it's, it's just how it is here. I'm Jessica Popovac, filling in as Curious City Editor, and to answer Stephen's question, we'll drill down on responses by powerful entities in the wake of the violence. The police, the courts, the political organizations, and the banks and realtors. And we're going to do that in conversation with an expert on the period, Adam Green. He's a professor of history at the University of Chicago, and he studies race and politics in American cities. To start, here's what Green says about what the city looked like before the riots. Chicago was definitely less segregated before 1919 than it was after. Chicago's black population was growing exponentially, but in many parts of Chicago, black and white people were figuring out how to live together in this new multiracial city. There were a number of both spheres of life— Um, For instance, uh, a number of workplaces in the city, schools across the city, where there were few, if any, incidences of overt conflict. There were tensions and there were misunderstandings, but few of these actually uh, moved up to the level of racial conflict. Even the so-called Black Belt, now known as Bronzeville, was pretty integrated. At the time of the riot in 1919, it was more than 40 percent white. But people there were getting along and adapting. Green says that according to historic documents and reports, this was true in other Southside neighborhoods too. Places like Morgan Park, Englewood, and Woodlawn. Woodlawn was a community that was virtually all white at the beginning of the 20th century. Some number of African Americans began to move in uh, during the period from about uh, 1900, 1905. They were moving into homes in that community. There were no incidences of racial tension. 
whether it was in relation to housing, whether it was competition in terms of work. To be clear, African-Americans did experience discrimination in several places, and people in certain neighborhoods were downright hostile to black newcomers. But that was not true across Chicago. After the riots in July 1919, many blacks and whites across the city were frightened and appalled by the violence. And they were also determined to make sure that it never happened again. A group of city leaders, all men, but white and black men, came together just after the riot. They examined what happened, and they charted a path towards a more integrated and peaceful city. They were coming together as a group and saying, well, what can we do now to learn from this terrible set of events? How can we put ourselves in a position as a city to prevent such a conflict from ever taking place? They looked at hard data on Chicago's successes and failures. They disproved racial myths, and they issued a report. Green says their observations were striking. That people need to think carefully about the actual facts of racial contact in the city. That because African-Americans move into white neighborhoods, it doesn't mean that property values depreciate. That because African-Americans are in schools with white youth, it doesn't mean that there are constant fights and constant assaults on the part of people. That African-American men are not predisposed to sexual violence against white women. The commission also included clear recommendations. They called for integrated playgrounds and parks, for equal access to restaurants, theaters and stores, and for the city to monitor and respond to racial conflicts. The report also recommended that there be as much as possible a kind of de-escalation of the tendency on the part of white communities to believe their worst elements in relation to thinking about what was the likely trajectory of racial contact and even in some cases racial rivalry or racial contest. But the commission said none of these recommendations could happen without justice, meaning the city had to hold perpetrators of racial violence to account. And that's one of the first ways that the police, the courts, and city leadership failed. Crimes committed during the riot went uninvestigated and unpunished. And the justice system came down hardest on black residents, even those who acted in self-defense. The commission pointed out that white gangs were key instigators of the riot and recommended that the violent gangs be disbanded. But that also didn't happen. Instead, they continued to intimidate black residents in several predominantly white neighborhoods. That was the case in Hyde Park. Hyde Park, as opposed to Woodlawn, realized a kind of pitch of hysteria and panic. There was a sense that if African-Americans were not forced to leave, and if necessary, according to the more extreme people within the community, by violence, um, that the community itself would sort of, you know, fall apart. Black homeowners continued to face violence in other neighborhoods, too. And this violent atmosphere, combined with the lack of justice for rioters, added to a feeling of fear and lawlessness on both sides. Still, some people, black and white, lobbied to heed advice from the commission. They lost. It's important to be very, very clear here. Um, too much of the leadership of the city, whether it was private sector, philanthropic, religious, political, whether it was grassroots, um, too much of the city chose to ignore the recommendations. And I think they chose to ignore the recommendations because in some ways to embrace the recommendations 
would have been too disruptive to the worldview that they had already sort of adopted themselves to. After 1919, which could have been the pretext for saying, we've got to figure out a way how to throw our lot in together and and build a city that's Mm -hmm. multiracial. Instead, people said, we already know our worldview in relation to those people. So let's find a way to either drive them out of the city if we can. But if we can't drive them out of the city, let's contain them. Let's put them in as small a space as possible, give them as small a share of resources as possible, and make them as little um, a potential sort of source of challenge to our authority and our supremacy. And so Chicago could have gone either way, towards greater integration or greater segregation. But too many people, especially whites in power, found it more convenient to ignore the facts and succumb to their fears. People were prepared to say, we're not going to consult the facts. We're going to double down on this tendency that what we have to do is contain this population rather than think about how to coexist with it. For white realtors and lenders, this translated into more formalized segregation. By 1925, just six years after the riots, the politically powerful Chicago Real Estate Board found a quasi-legal solution, restrictive covenants. The covenants were drawn into homeowners' contracts, forbidding them to rent or sell to African Americans. Often entire blocks or neighborhood associations would sign on to them. They had the effect of crowding blacks into just a few neighborhoods. By the mid-1930s, 75% of the city of Chicago was covered by restrictive covenants Mm -hmm. and not accessible to African American purchase of homes. The covenants were outlawed in 1948, but they had already segregated blacks and whites during the peak of the Great Migration. So really, going back to Stephen's question about the 1919 riots' effects on segregation, Green says the riots did have an effect. But really, the effect was from the choices that individuals and communities made after the riot. They could have resisted an environment of fear, but instead, they reached for restrictive covenants and other inequitable lending and selling practices, and they all had ripple effects. And changes in schools, changes in policing, and ultimately changes that created two completely divergent forms of life to the point now where a predominantly black community, Englewood, has a, a, a life expectancy of barely 60 years. And a community that's predominantly white and rich, Streeterville, has a life expectancy above 90 years. Those disparities are ones that tell us how different the lives are of African-Americans and whites. That's a legacy of the race riot. But it's not a legacy of the race riot as a moment of conflict. It's a legacy of the race riot in terms of people deciding that the way to avoid that conflict from ever happening was to enforce the separation of people who are white and black from each other. That was Adam Green, professor of history at the University of Chicago. Sean Ali edited this story. Jesse Dukes is our audio producer, and Catherine Nagasawa is our digital producer. This story was actually a two-parter. This one answered the question about the 1919 race riots' effects. Last episode, we answered why they happened in the first place. Special help for this series came from Claire Hartfield, David Krugler, and Timuel Black. 
Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation. I'm Jessica Popovac. One last thing. We got a few comments about our use of the term paddy wagon when referring to a large police van. The term has connections to derogatory names for Irish immigrants. Curious City won't be using the term in the future. Thanks for the feedback. Hey, Curious Citizens. We've been thinking about the Midwest. I'm from the Midwest. The heartland. You like amber waves of grain? And what makes it so, well, Midwesty? I grew up in Duluth, where we got a library shaped like an oar boat and cinnamon rolls the size of your head. Our friends at the Newberry Library are working on a whole series of exhibits and events exploring what actually is the Midwest anyway. And as part of that, we're looking for your questions. What do you want to know about Midwestern people, settlement, food? You can go to wbez.org slash curiouscity to ask your question. Just use the word Midwest somewhere in the question. Or email us at curiouscity at wbez.org. I'm an American aquarium drinker, and I assassin down the at a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Line takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org curious. Thank you.